I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Joni here. A very warm welcome to the new year. It's exciting that the podcast has grown so much. And part of that is because you guys are telling your friends and loved ones and leaving reviews. So please, please keep doing that. It really helps spread the word about the principle of charity. So to kick off 2023, we have a big one, a conversation on trigger warnings. But before we get into it, we want to encourage you to join immersive journalist, psychonaut and best-selling author Michael Pollan for an evening that will change the way you see food, drugs and how the human and natural worlds intersect. Live on stage in May 2023 in a city near you. Tickets are selling fast, so get in quick at thinkinc.org.au. And now over to Emile and Lloyd. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Now let's get on to today's Principle of Charity's personal challenge. To really imbibe the Principle of Charity, There's a useful question that I have adopted in my meditational practice, and that is asking the question, what is this? So next time you are in the middle of a disagreement, take a moment if you can and ask yourself quietly, what is this? You could answer that this disagreement is a conflict with an immoral or idiotic person, or you could answer that this is a conversation between people who have different opinions and are trying to find their way. This frame will arm you with a curiosity. It will reduce your cortisol, and you may even make a friend with someone who has a different view to you. Now let's get on to the question and our topic for today. Emil, what is it? Thanks, Lloyd. The topic today is trigger warning. Should we move towards triggers or away from them? Trigger warnings have become common practice these days, not just in university campuses, but across the media landscape, film, TV, online, social media, whatever. They warn us that the material we're about to see or hear might trigger distress. But what actually is a trigger and what's it meant to protect us from? Well, trigger warnings were originally linked with post-traumatic stress disorder, the idea being that those who've been through a traumatic event, for example, sexual violence, and who then suffer from PTSD, can be triggered into re-experiencing that distress when exposed to related content. These days, however, trigger warnings seem to capture any sort of potentially distressing content and are aimed at everyone, whether we have clinical PTSD or not. The idea is that we should be, or maybe even we have the right to be, warned about distressing content in advance. The question then, of course, is why is it helpful to be warned? 
There seem to be two main arguments for this. First, if we know ahead of time that material might distress us, we have time to emotionally prepare ourselves and therefore to lessen the impact. The second is that it gives us time to decide to opt out altogether, you know, to leave the room or turn off the show or whatever, so we don't subject ourselves to that material. But do trigger warnings work effectively to achieve these aims? Do people in practice avoid content that may be triggering? And if they do choose to watch or listen, are people able to prepare themselves emotionally, reducing the impact of the material? Or maybe there's an argument that the opposite might happen. Might there be an anticipatory effect where people get more distressed as they wait for and brace for the traumatic content? Just take a moment uh, to imagine you're you're told you're about to hear something horrific. Are you able to prepare for it or do you feel more stressed? But let's pause and step back even further. Some commentators argue that all of this perpetuates a culture that sees distressing material as dangerous, as something to be fearful of and to avoid. They argue that it creates a culture of fragility where young people in particular end up less rather than more resilient. So rather than being nervous of distressing material, we need to encourage a mindset where that material, like a gym session, offers us an opportunity to strengthen and grow. Back on the other end of the spectrum, there's the view that trigger warnings are nowhere near enough, that particularly in institutions, for example, university, it's not good enough to give students a trigger warning and the ability to opt out. If a student's been a victim of sexual violence, for example, leaving a classroom when a teacher presents a trigger warning may just make them feel more stigmatized, more distressed, And they'll just end up behind in their studies, frankly. This view challenges us to have a true trauma-informed institution approach where students who've been subjected to trauma are properly supported by their universities and workplaces, where they're, you know, if, if they're not, they're at risk of a secondary trauma caused by what's been termed institutional betrayal. Well, Lloyd, we're lucky enough to have two guests on this podcast who bring two very different views to the table. One of them is a psychologist who has done detailed database research into trigger warnings and has concluded not only that they do not work, but they are likely to exacerbate distress. The other is a sociologist who sees trigger warnings as important, but actually nowhere near enough, that they leave students, for example, those who are victims of sexual assault, unsupported and at risk of secondary trauma betrayed by the institutions that are meant to look out for them. So Lloyd, Tell us a bit more about who we've got on. Emil, our two guests today are Nicole Badera and Victoria Bridgeland. Let me tell you a little bit about Nicole first. Nicole has a PhD in sociology and is a sociologist at the University of Michigan and an author of the forthcoming book, On the Wrong Side, How Universities Betray Survivors to Protect Perpetrators of Sexual Assault. Nicole's research broadly focuses on how our social structures contribute to survivors' trauma and make sexual violence more likely to occur in the future. Her scholarship has influenced sexual violence prevention programming across the United States, including for Planned Parenthood, and her work has featured in media, including the New York Times, NPR, and the BBC. Our other guest today, Emil, is Victoria Bridgeland. Victoria graduated with a research PhD in 2021 from Flinders University. Her research interests include expectancy effects, emotional regulation, and memory for traumatic events. Victoria's main body of work concerns trigger warnings and what benefit, if any, they have for people encountering negative material. 
She currently serves on the Student Caucus Executive Board for the Society for Applied Research in Memory and Cognition, and she won in 2019 the South Australian Postgraduate Fulbright Scholarship. She's currently at Harvard with her research focusing on trigger warnings in art spaces. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Thanks so much, Nicole and Victoria, for joining us on the podcast. Nicole, I'd like to start with you. You know, I know you see trigger warnings and content warnings as as important, but not enough. And, and we need a much more holistic, trauma-centered approach to universities and institutions. And we're going to explore all of that in a bit. But just, I guess, to start at the basics, Nicole, what what is the purpose of trigger warnings? What what are they trying to achieve? That sounds like a really simple question, but it's actually <laughs> more complicated than you think because depending on who you're asking, trigger warnings have a couple of different goals. If you're asking a survivor activist who maybe was sitting in a class and they were shocked by the way their professor had talked about sexual violence, then they would say the trigger warning is just letting them know that someone was about to say something damaging about sexual assault that would help them brace for impact. Mm. But if you were to ask an instructor why they use trigger warnings, it's often Mm -hmm. because it's an easy thing to do to appease activists in your classes. That rather than changing your approach to studying sexual violence or talking about sexual violence in big group discussions, a trigger warning is a way to say, if you get upset, I'm setting an expectation that you leave as opposed to if you get upset. We're going to grapple with that as part of the course material. Yeah, yeah. But just to sort of, I guess, reiterate, you're you're saying that from the survivor or a trauma survivor's point of view, the basic idea is that it allows them to prepare, to brace, to process a little bit ahead of time that they're going to be things that might be disturbing for them. And then I guess potentially to decide to leave the room or to to you know not not engage so is it those sort of those two things that's kind of the idea. There's an expectation that survivors, if they're given a trigger warning, will leave, although in practice, hardly anyone ever does. We'll get to some of the more, I guess, interesting parts of that in a second, Nicole. But, but to you, Victoria, and before we go to your meta research that you've conducted on how effective trigger warnings actually are, just from the sort of psychology point of view, I'd like just to understand how triggering works as a phenomenon. You know, as I understand it, when there's a trauma that's unresolved, people can be triggered into re-experiencing traumatic emotions by a range of cues, which can include content in you know discussions, books, TV shows, whatever. But we know that not everyone who's been through traumatic events ends up with you know post-traumatic stress disorder (PTSD). I, I, my understanding in war is that actually it's it's a minority of people end up with it. The rest are able to process the trauma. So can anyone who's gone through trauma be triggered into distress or is it only relevant to people with PTSD? And and are trigger warnings meant to protect people who haven't had trauma, but are just exposed to content which is distressing in nature, but doesn't have any particular traumatic resonance with them? What's that specific purpose of trigger warnings, as you understand them? To just address the what's the purpose of trigger warnings, generally, if you ask people, there'll be sort of this, if you're asking someone that would like to see a trigger warning, there's a sort of two-prong response. Um, One will be the preparation angle. So if you see a trigger warning, you could then use it as a time to pause and emotionally prepare to cope with content. 
or to completely avoid content. And this is sort of Mm. just reflecting what Nicole was saying before. So that's the general sort of thing. And sometimes people argue for one or the other and they'll say, no, 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 I don't think they're a preparation thing. I think they're an avoidance thing. Or no, 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 I don't think they're an avoidance thing. They're a preparation thing. So you get a mixed bag again, like as Nicole said, it's very variable for everyone, what they think they do, what they think they get out of them. Um, From the PTSD and triggering side, triggering, the word trigger has sort of exploded as a term that's used in meme culture, it's used on the internet, it's sort of lost some of its original meaning. So if you go back mm. to the very tight definition and where it came from originally, it ties back specifically to PTSD research showing that stimuli that has overlapping characteristics with a traumatic event can lead someone to re-experience emotional responses to a traumatic event. And re-experiencing symptoms can be anything from something quite mild, like, oh, I'm now being reminded of my event and I'm having a thought about it, all the way through to the most extreme form of re-experiencing, which would be a dissociative flashback where somebody doesn't actually recognise that they're in the present moment anymore, they're actually being taken Mm. back to that time. That's a more rare form of triggering, like not everybody's going to have that. and But some, some people do in, in severe cases of PTSD. But in terms of even just looking at the origins of trigger warnings, the term trigger was never even that tightly used for them either. So trigger warnings were originally um, featured on feminist message boards in the 1990s, like the sort of form that we, we know them today. Um, and it was primarily for uh, recounting um, sexual assault, assault experiences, but also like eating disorders. So you can get tr- people being feeling triggered with eating disorders as well. So they might see something related to an eating disorder and then feel the need to restrict or binge eat or things like that. And, then, and also a range of other mental health disorders as well. So that's sort of still very clinical lens though. And the way they've evolved over time has, which I guess is kind of leading now into your second question, is that they're not only just being used in this clinical way anymore for people with clinical disorders, they're sort of put on just any range of negative stuff, whether it's politically negative, whether it's um, negative content, like say in a medical context or anything like that. So it sort of just exploded and like had this sort of, I guess, bracket creep in terms of the definition of what a trigger is and also what you might put a trigger warning on over time as the internet has exploded. That rings absolutely true when my, uh, I think it was 12-year-old son at the time, started using triggering about his daily school environment. You realise that the word has now become very broad, um, very broad indeed, and it's great to have that understanding of where it comes from. So let's jump to your research now. Mm -hmm. What did your research show? Do trigger warnings, I mean, are they effective at reducing distress, I guess, in the people they're they're aimed at helping? I think you'd have to uh, firstly just look at what we were looking at as distress yes. in our studies. Uh, and that was more looking at like immediate emotional responses. So like when somebody sees a trigger warning, how do they feel once they've seen it before they see the thing that they're seeing? So anticipatory anxiety or anticipatory effect. And then we also looked at how then might it change the way that they um, interpret negative material um, or yeah, consume that negative material. Um, and across um, 12-ish studies now, Um, in a variety of different labs from around the world, um, we do consistently find that um, trigger warnings don't seem to be very good at giving people strategies to mitigate negative responses. And so you generally find no difference between people that get shown a trigger warning and people that don't, and then they go on to view any manner of distressing videos, um, images, or whatever the researchers using that study. Um, But you do seem to find that they create this sort of noxious um, anticipatory period before seeing the thing. So people get the warning and then they start feeling a little bit anxious about what's coming up. 
and then mm. they view this the whatever it is and yeah they they don't seem to feel any better so they're sort of getting a little bit of anxiety before they see the thing and then yeah it doesn't seem to be changing their response not in a negative way either it doesn't seem to be making them feel worse about the thing but it's not making them feel any better but yeah that's the sum of it is that there's not a lot going on with them so so you know assuming the basic aim of a trigger warning is to give people the opportunity to prepare for what's coming up and emotionally sort of calibrate and equalize the research is showing that it's it's not succeeding in doing that that having that time doesn't let people or isn't successful at getting people to um to prepare or that you can't prepare for these things why I mean, it's sort of a little counterintuitive in many ways. Mm-hmm. I understand the anticipatory effect, which is I could see how, you know, if you know something scary is about to happen, you start, you know, maybe start yeah. feeling scared. Some people may start feeling more calm, but, uh, you know, we'll get into some of that anticipatory effect issues later. But just the basis of if you know something's coming up, why do you think people um, aren't better prepared to deal with it? Um, I guess... To do a live example, if I told you that I was about to show you something really horrific, what mental strategies would you use right now if I asked you to list them? To make I just actually felt slightly stressed better? when you said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like what? What would you do? Um, and this is actually a question yeah, we a asked question. in one of my studies because we were like, it's a really basic question. What would you do if something related to something that's happened to you in the past was about to you were about to see it? Um, and we found that, and then we, we asked people to write down what they would do and we coded all these responses. It was about 300 responses. Um, and we found that most people don't actually have a strategy that they, like a, a, t- a strategy or a tool that they can draw upon. Um, because it is just such a, a hard thing to mentally kind of know what to, like if you haven't, some people even specifically said like they've never had, um, any therapy or being given any tools. And so they would, they were just like, I had, I have no idea. I just feel nervous, but I don't have like a cognitive strategy uh, that I know that wow. I can draw upon. Um, so the general because, idea of you have time to process it is yeah. too theoretical and ephemeral concept. It's like, what actually yeah. are you doing? To, if you don't actually, have a tool, you yeah. just feel like you're bracing yourself, which yeah. maybe makes you, like when you said, I'm going to tell you something horrific, I slightly braced. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. as far as you sort of go. Um, yeah. Long- yeah, but you're not. Yeah, you're not then going, okay, I'm going to try and now reappraise how I'm thinking about this or I'm going to try and think about this in a neutral way, which are ways that you could try and think about it. But most people don't know that that's even a way that you could think about something negative coming up. Okay. Well, just before coming to you, Nicole, there was, Victoria, there was the third element, as I understood it, of the research, which is um, do people use trigger warnings to avoid content that they mm-hmm. suspect will trigger distressing emotions. And as I understand it, your finding was that people don't use it in that way. Could you sort of clarify what you found? Yeah. So that's probably the more baby of the research answers in terms of trigger warning research group uh, findings. It hasn't been focused upon as heavily as the emotional side of it. But uh, the research that has been published now, I think it's about five studies, uh, across, again, all different labs, different ways of sort of um, operationalizing or um, defining what avoidance is. Yeah, we're not, we're not finding that people are very good at turning away from negative stuff. And in fact, 
people seem to be quite interested in negative stuff and are quite curious about negative things, even at their own detriment. But even if they could be triggered by it, even if even they are if people... they could be, even people with a trauma history, even people with de- depression symptoms, or people that have a history of trauma that matches the thing that they could avoid, we, we're just finding that people aren't. People are very morbidly curious, and they often will want to see something disturbing, even if they know it will make them upset. Um, right, which is one of right. the challenges with the whole. Once you start getting into the avoidance argument, it's quite. Um, it's quite sticky and prickly and you realize that not all avoidance is good and not all approach behavior towards negative stuff is is good or bad either so um but yeah generally speaking people aren't avoiding stuff with warnings any more than the thing that didn't have the warning on it so uh, people aren't avoiding um in according to the research that it's not reducing the distress and that there is a slight anticipatory effect which might even increase i mean i'm so curious nicole you know based on your experience your research and you know the sort of need you you say to bring up in classroom you know the distressing material that might be studied to allow um students to you know who may have a history of trauma to be able to you know start processing and 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 have time before they're sort of shocked with the material how do you respond to these studies? Like, what, what do you think, what do you make of it all? Well, it doesn't surprise me because, right. first of all, not all mentions of traumatic material is inherently traumatizing. Researchers right. have known for a long time that the discussion of sexual assault can either be healing or hurtful for survivors. Huh. And that depends on what you're saying, right? So you can imagine, for example, if a survivor is in therapy and they're learning about their sexual assault and they're talking about it a lot, but they're gaining new tools to cope with it. They're understanding Mm. the social reasons behind why sexual violence happens and realizing that it wasn't their fault. These sorts Mm. of things would be really healing. But if in contrast, someone at you know, a holiday dinner in their family is saying that sexual assault survivors are all liars, that what happened to them isn't a big deal, and they're Mm. minimizing that experience or blaming them for what happened, that's going to be a harmful discussion of sexual Mm. assault, right? So the actual subject matter matters more than what, you know, the presence or absence of the material on sexual assault, if that makes sense. But the other thing that comes to mind I'm a sociologist. And so I think a lot about the structures and the organizational norms in places where trigger warnings take place. And thinking about a college classroom, for example, I've never had a student leave after offering some kind of a content warning. And it doesn't surprise me at all because imagine you're sitting in a classroom and your professor says, if you are a sexual assault survivor and you don't want to hear this material, you're welcome to walk (laughs) out now. Who's going to disclose that they're a sexual assault survivor in front of all of their peers? That's incredibly stigmatizing. And that is actually way scarier than... Mm the idea of having to sit through a conversation about sexual assault that could be damaging. So no, I'm not surprised in the slightest. And I think the same thing is true with the finding that survivors can struggle to prepare, even if they know that this information is coming, if they don't have the strategies to make sense of it, and they don't have a specific ideology in mind to say, okay, I'm going to take a few deep breaths. I'm going to check in with myself, you know, all of these things that you might learn in therapy, but if therapy is inaccessible or they were sexually assaulted really recently on American college campuses, I have taught classes where someone was sexually assaulted the night before 
the class that I'm teaching, then there is no way that they will have these skills in place yet. So no, these findings don't surprise me at all. I mean, it does feel like this research does fly in the face of the common consensus about the the importance of trigger warnings, that trigger warnings primarily are there to allow people, as you say, to brace and to prepare. And of course, there may be people who have been to therapy or haven't been to therapy, but the research seems to indicate that as a whole, even if you've probably been to therapy, people cannot prepare adequately or doesn't reduce the effect of the distress. I mean, I was surprised by that. Did you do you find that surprising? And does it reduce your trust in trigger warnings per se? Like, should you even bring up if you're in a class and you're teaching, uh, you know, you're an English professor and you're teaching a book which contains, you know, topics around sexual violence or, or, or potentially traumatic topics? Is it helpful to bring that up early? And why would one bring it up early if it's not going to reduce the distress? My main response to this is that I would have some questions if these findings hold in all social circumstances, right? Right. So thinking about the example of where trigger warnings originally come from, thinking about feminist groups that talk about these materials a lot, perhaps everyone in those spaces would have some norms already to say, it's okay if you want to step away. Nobody's going to stigmatize you for that. Or to say, all right, as a group, We're now going to take a minute to step in. As an instructor, that's something that I would do if I wanted to continue to use content warnings is I would say, all right, I want to let you know that this material is coming up. Everybody take a second. Let's take a deep breath. Make sure that we're ready to hear it and set some standards for things that the entire class could do to be better prepared to emotionally manage the material. But you would have to teach that to the students. You can't assume they have that information. Because what it's indicating is that people find it very hard to emotionally prepare. Yes. And so you're saying you're agreeing with that, but that, you know, one can teach it in a classroom. I mean, do you think teachers, and what about trigger warnings that are just on TV shows or films or online media where, you know, you're really just trying to signal that something distressing is coming up and you want to give people adequate warning. Do you think they now you know, does this reduce your faith in them as effective tools or are there other reasons to have them? I think there are other reasons to have them. And the one that really comes up is that those same moments of a content warning on a TV show, for example, often come with the sharing of resources for people who have become distressed, right? So there might be a hotline that a survivor can call if they need to talk afterward and process what they've seen, or if what happens very commonly Watching an experience on TV leads you to realize, wow, that's something that happened to me. I'd never really identified as a survivor before. Maybe I should think about that a little bit more and I'm a little overwhelmed. And so in those cases, it's not so much the content warning that's helpful, but that space that's now normative in our society can be a place where we share a lot of other resources instead. I mean, that might be an argument to put it at the end of the show where it might not cause anticipatory stress but might then help people move from the content back to their lives. I've come across an argument which I thought was quite interesting, that there's just an issue of consent here, that even if it's not helpful, and even if it potentially causes anticipatory distress, that there's still a rationale as people deserve to know what they're going to be exposed to so that they can decide if they consent or not. And so do do you see consent as like a rationale that sits outside you know, the effectiveness of trigger warnings per se? I think so. I think so. But again, I would say that it's really important to change our broader social context too, that we have to make sure that consent can be freely given. So going back to the example of a college class, if 
your professor is operating from a presumption of everybody who stays in this class has consented to yeah, everything right. that I'm going to say on sexual assault. Well, that's not true. There's a power dynamic involved. And I think that there is a very good chance that trigger warnings would be more effective if we use them in spaces that we're not so power laden as the ones where we currently use them the most often. Yeah, yeah. Well, Victoria, I'm, I'm interested in your view on sort of consent here. And I was just thinking, you know, we live in a world with so much information being thrown at us all the time. So, and maybe trigger warnings are just additional ways to inform people of what they're about to be exposed to. You know, we've always had content warnings on TV shows saying it contains drug use or violence. And, and before we see a film, we, we normally see a trailer. I know I'd hate to walk into a, a horror film thinking it's a rom-com, you know, like you want to be prepared. There's so much stimulus around us. Don't we just need ways to control what gets in? So couldn't we see trigger warnings as just another tool to help us decide what stimulus and information to let in? Or do you see them as a sort of separate category that implies something qualitatively different? So I've got another related sort of research area that is specifically about warnings in consent forms and very similar issues apply. So it's balancing the concerns of autonomy and giving people choice, but also the concerns of like, um, non-maleficence or non, not wanting to hurt people. So, yeah. for instance, in, the, in this research, um, if you tell people a whole bunch of side effects before they take a drug, they may <laughs> actually experience those side effects and it's because you've told them about it. It's not because of the drug. It's because you've told them about it. Hmm. And so you have to balance the needs for the autonomy, which obviously informed consent is extremely important. The reason why we even have that term is because of a landmark court case in 1957 where somebody, um, a doctor, they didn't, didn't used to have to explain uh, procedures to patients or risks and it resulted in this patient becoming a paraplegic. And so it went to court and then informed consent was then born as a thing that needed to be from there on out, needed to be part of our sort of justice system and part of our legal procedures and things like that. So it's very important to warn people about risks, but it also is important to balance that with a non-maleficent angle. But do you think people have the right to consent to being subject to distressing material or that's just a part of life? You know, do people, could people say, hold on, you've breached a right. Like you've just shown me, um, you know, discussed a literary work that has caused me a lot of distress and I was not warned about it. And that's unacceptable. I do think people have that right, but I also think people have the right for a expert or a someone that knows about a procedure or something they're going to participate in to also the right to minimal harm being done to them. What do you think we reasonably have the right to consent to in terms of the information we're presented with in society? Like if we're online on YouTube, on TikTok, you know, do we do we need to know what we're about to see before we see it in order to be able to consent to it? Or is there a you know, where's that line in your view? Uh, I guess people could use context clues if we're coming back to a context example as well. So if you're entering, like, going into a class or something and you read the course syllabus, you probably would get some clues from that. Um, whether you need an additional warning that would then, I don't know if a warning would then change your perspective on, I don't know, how negative that was if you after you read the syllabus. Right, the syllabus can be a, a form of, of some other. We can use other acceptance, clues. contractual yeah. consent. I just, I guess, my main sort of take home would be like, I don't think the warning is going to add any more value. I don't know if it's going to 
make somebody make a different decision that they might have already not made given other clues. And I think it's just not good to rely on it as a, like putting it back onto the person being like, oh, I've warned you now. If you watch it and you feel upset, it's kind of your own. I know, Nicole, you certainly agree that just putting a warning out there and putting it on the person, particularly if they're a sexual assault survivor, is not best practice. And I'd like to look at your work on institutional betrayal and why trigger warnings are not just insufficient, but they can mean people who have been traumatised by sexual violence, for example, may end up more excluded. And as I understand it, you want institutions like universities to be much more trauma-aware environments that really take the sensitivities of trauma, traumatised students seriously. And I imagine, you know, you might extend this to other institutions as well. We'll get to that. But what is institutional betrayal and what's your vision for teaching environments that properly take the need of traumatised students seriously? Institutional betrayal is this academic concept that comes from psychology where psychologists find that there are actions that institutions can perform or inactions, the unwillingness to act can do this too, that actually exacerbates traumatic symptoms. Hmm. In studies, institutional betrayal in the aftermath of a sexual assault appears the same in terms of the level of trauma as being sexually assaulted twice. And Ah. so some examples of the types of things that can cause institutional betrayal, and this really comes from when a survivor goes to an institution they trust for help or for information, and they don't receive it. And instead, they might be, their experience might be minimized. You know, you think about going to your school and saying, I was sexually assaulted. And they say, we don't have a sexual assault problem here. Mm. You must be confused, you know, something like that. Um, It can also be the refusal to take proactive steps to address sexual violence. So an example of that might be if there's a known perpetrator that has hurt a lot of people and an institution refuses to remove that person. That can cause a sense of institutional betrayal. And then also things like creating an environment where sexual violence seems more likely in the future. So to bring it back into the classroom example, that could be something like a professor standing at the front of the room sharing rape myths and saying that sexual assault is something that victims bring on themselves, for example, Mm. where it looks Mm. like someone is endorsing and encouraging rape culture in a space where already sexual assault is a problem. So my interest in institutional betrayal comes from some of my own experiences as a student and as a professor, Mm. where a lot of the most emotionally charged moments in a classroom around discussions of sexual assault did not seem to be coming from a victim who felt triggered by something, you know, by the mere mention of Mm. sexual assault, right? (laughs) Instead, the damage was taking place because of the content matter because of the types of discussions that were taking place where, for example, someone might say all victims are liars. None of them are telling the truth. And the real risk is false allegations. If a professor says something like that in the front of the room or endorses the comments of another student, that isn't a victim who is so oversensitive and triggered by these comments. That is a victim who is experiencing institutional betrayal, which is actually a new trauma taking place in this setting. And does institutional betrayal extend beyond sexual violence to other forms of trauma? For example, people are traumatized by racist slurs or being ostracized as an ethnic minority or even just emotional abandonment. I mean, there's so many different forms of trauma that people could have. Should teachers be aware and teach to all the forms of trauma that that materials uh, that they're, they, they're using in the class could, could, could link to? Like how broad does it go? 
The study of institutional betrayal is still relatively new as far as academic concepts go. Mm-hmm. That being said, we do see that it has taken place in other settings as well. Certainly not just college campuses, but we see it with sexual assault in the military, for example. But also on other topics, like you're mentioning, racism comes up as something where institutional mm-hmm. betrayal plays a role. Also, mismanaging COVID and health risks has been linked to institutional betrayal. Whenever anyone feels like their lives or lively hoods are threatened, that can produce a sense of trauma. And so it's not surprising that in a lot of these cases we're finding it can produce a sense of institutional betrayal. I do think there's a strong case for thinking intersectionally about these issues and for thinking about how to take a trauma-informed approach, not just when talking about, for example, sexual assault, but also when talking about mass incarceration or police brutality as well. Yeah. So there are two things. One is how far the institutions go and the other is how far the trauma sort of spectrum goes. On the trauma side, I'm because I'm in the film TV business, I'm a, I run a film TV production company, and I know that storytelling itself is like a way of taking audiences to often the edge of uh, distress and, you know, to the edge of their emotional capacity and often redeeming them, sometimes not, depending on, you know, what genre one's in. But at, at what point... You know, are we within the world of traumatic content? And what point are we just dealing with content that is distressing and is part of the exploration of what it is to be human? When I think about this question, I think a lot about therapeutic settings. And Mm -hmm. again, we might be covering distressing material. We might be talking about something like sexual assault. And your therapy session might be really, really difficult But if the goal is to provide a benefit to a survivor, then it is okay to be distressed along the way if there's a net positive, right? Mm. And so I'm thinking about a lot of stories of sexual trauma that survivor activists tend to really like are the ones that take the perspective of a survivor, that give a good example and make survivors feel normal and like the Mm. trauma that they're experiencing is not unusual, that they are not broken, materials that suggest that survivors have the capacity to heal, which is an empirical reality. Survivors can Mm. heal from sexual trauma. And so these stories tend to be a bit more optimistic, where instead of once someone is sexually assaulted, say, as a plot point for developing a villain's narrative arc, but instead a sexual assault leads to a plot point in a narrative for the survivor's arc, which includes the capacity to be happy in the future, the capacity Mm. to laugh in the future, something that more accurately represents the experience of sexual assault rather than this glorified, um, you know, I often talk about Hollywood rape as one of the most confusing things for survivors because the way that sexual assault takes place in the media industry, in movies and TV shows, tends to be a stranger jumping out of the bushes. That's really mm. different from how most people experience sexual assault. Usually it's someone mm. you know, someone who you previously trusted, who maybe lives in your same household as a family member or a friend. And mm. we don't see that story very often. And so I do think that the media should cover those stories that are more accurate representations of what sexual assault looks like. And I don't think it will be as damaging for survivors if the point is to say, your experience is normal, you will be okay, and we think this is a social problem, and we don't want to be tolerant of this type of violence in the future. Mm, mm, mm. And in terms of the breadth of organizations and institutions, I imagine you can feel betrayal in the company that you work with. It doesn't need to be a 
a university campus or a government institution. It's like uh, it, right. it can be broader than that. Yeah. One of the key characteristics we're seeing in the institutions that can produce betrayal is they tend to be somewhere that you have a dependency or that you trust. So if you already think very poorly of an institution and then they also treat you poorly in the context of a disclosure of sexual a disclosure of sexual assault, you might not experience institutional betrayal because it didn't require this degree of vulnerability to ask for help. You might be unlikely to go to that organization in the first place, right? It really does yeah. come with this sense of trust of, I thought you were going to help me and instead you hurt me more. It's definitely a very high burden on organizations. I use burden as probably the wrong word, but a threshold in that a private company needs to ensure that any material content discussions that is held within the company is not going to make any employee feel, I guess, worse off, you know, feel less safe, feel um, distressed in a way that's not redemptive. Because if they do, they'll in a sense be betraying their trust and, 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 and compounding their trauma in some ways. It's a high threshold, isn't it? I guess that's, that's the point of what you're arguing for. It is and it isn't. <laughs> it is and it isn't. Because on one hand, we on other topics, we tend to expect expertise from the organizations that pick up those topics, right? right? So, you know, I always compare it to, you know, someone who's going to be building a rocket ship. We don't think it's an absurd set of expectations to say the rocket ship must work. It shouldn't hurt the mm. astronauts. <laughs> you know, we just think that there's a degree of expertise required to broach that topic, to do that kind of science. And it should be the same for trauma-informed care. When survivors are saying that they need something, that's not an opinion. That's not a sign of weakness. There is an empirical reality in what is helpful and what is hurtful for survivors. And organizations that want to broach these topics should employ experts who can get it right. And I will add that in my research... I tend to find it's not that hard to get it right. That if you're just not misrepresenting sexual violence, if you were doing this in a way that is sensitive to the fact that someone in the room might be an expert because of their own lived experience and that it's not appropriate to tell them that they've misunderstood the story of their own life. You know, these are pretty low bars. It's not actually. that hard. If the intent is there, then, you know, things follow from from that intent. I, and knowledge. I guess. And knowledge. Yeah, the intent and um, knowledge. Victoria, you know, going to this sort of, and rocket ship's a great analogy because it sort of implies there is a sort of singular truth about how to build and, and, and using scientific principles across the social sciences. But aside from the question of whether trigger warnings work or not to reduce the stress, there, there is this more interesting question, isn't there? It's whether we should be trying to avoid distress in the first place. Is that helpful for us as human beings or unhelpful to our long-term flourishing? And I know you you quote some of Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff's work, and I remember reading their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, when it came out. What are the arguments in favour of distress? Distress is sort of one of those emotions that can yeah take you to the edge of like being a human. And I think there's this thing that always feeling distressed should be appraised as a really negative thing and it means something's wrong. But actually sometimes it's okay to feel sad and it's okay to feel distressed. And mm. thinking about it in that way may actually make you feel better in the long term because, yeah, not all negative emotion necessarily needs to be appraised as something is wrong with me. Um, mm. I, I, again, like I'm broken, those kind of things. Um, I can't fit into this society. I'm in danger. 
Um, like those are the kind of maladaptive sort of cognitions that you see in clinical disorders. Um, I guess, yeah, experiencing distressing things is part of the human experience. So that's on, on the one hand. On the other hand, we also know that constant exposure to traumas or constant exposure to traumatic material does make people feel distressed. It's often extremely individual as well. So something that one person finds really negative and traumatic and distressing, another person may have zero reaction to that. So two people could be in exactly the same car crash and one person may then go into develop PTSD and one person may not. So mm, everything mm. that we find negative, uh, each individual person, um, yeah, varies considerably. Well, before um, before we yeah. go into that sort of mid-zone, let's just stay for a moment on that argument that people like Haidt and Lukanov make for, I guess, trigger warnings and that sort of sensitised approach to trauma or to distress being a form of overprotection which can prevent students and people generally learning to cope with uncomfortable emotions. It makes people more scared potentially and makes us weaker. It's a sort of, you know, Nicholas Taleb's idea of anti-fragile, that Mm -hmm. we actually have the ability to um, get more strong, more resilient from stresses, that stresses are actually going to the gym. What's, you know, what's the psychological argument in favour of that? If I could just press you a little more before we we look to the other side. I would still turn it back to the appraisal argument. So if something really negative has happened, people could appraise it in several ways. And if you're appraising it from a mindset that it's going to destroy you and it was highly traumatic and it's making you really upset, that might lead you then to develop PTSD. But if you're appraising the negative thing in a completely different way and thinking, okay, I'm not going to centre my whole life around this, this isn't going to control my life, I guess that would be more from a growth or resilient standpoint but it's just the appraisal of that negative thing versus what the negative thing is. Mm. Um, so that there's sort of these two frameworks within PTSD um, theory and researches. And one is like there's a certain set of traumatic events and those traumatic events are the ones that usually cause PTSD. And then there's sort of the framework that I would come from, which is more of a memory model. So I'm more, I'm more interested in I don't really care what the event is I care that somebody's having a PTSD reaction about that event. And to mm. me, the fact that that memory has become like a pathogenic memory about that thing, that's more interesting to me. And so, yeah, it just it just comes down to the whole, if you're, I guess, going back to the coddling of the American mind, I guess their argument is if you're approaching it from a sort of victim mindset or a, I'm going to be, I'm going to be ruined for life by this and trauma is, con- I'm centralizing my life around my trauma you could potentially have a more poorer trajectory than somebody else that's approaching it from a different type of mindset or appraisal. And stresses and traumatic moments can actually make people stronger if you're able to process it in a healthy way. People can grow. I mean, it's sort of almost folk wisdom that people grow from stresses. Like we know that like additive traumas are usually worse. So if you're experiencing multiple traumas, it's you're probably not going to have as good a life as somebody that's experienced no or just had one trauma. You're probably going to have worse mental health and things like that. Um, I guess it's just uh, the the way that that particular individual person appraises that thing that's happened to them is just the most key important thing, I guess. It's what one takes to the trauma. It's, there, there is a, it's, yes. There's the trauma and then there's the approach yep. to the trauma and they are, they are a dynamic system and you can't just look at the trauma itself. You have to look exactly, at yeah. 
what one yeah. brings to it. And everyone's has a different physiology and a makeup, but also there are yeah. mindsets that um, are important yes. in how one approaches trauma. And so someone may have that mindset that you described before that, okay, now I'm stronger. I know I've gotten through this. Like if you've ever been through a really challenging thing that you didn't think you could get through and you're like, okay, actually I did rise to the challenge and I know I, you know, you I do know feel I stronger, do don't you? Yeah. You, you could you feel stronger in the aftermath of that. And then there might be someone else that that doesn't work for them. So yeah, it's sort of a, a mixed bag, I'd say. We've sort of dealt with a, a chunk of my next question, which was about that mid-zone, like in my understanding of trauma from writers like Bruce Perry, Bessel van der Kolk, that we have a, a circle of tolerance for a level of stimuli that we can process. And some people can be exposed to intense stimuli like skydiving or being at war and they're fine. Others are naturally more sensitive and can find going to a party, you know, the most mm-hmm. distressful event of the week. And when a traumatic event happens, some people are able to process it, as we're saying, and move on, Others and become sometimes even more resilient, whilst others can't and end up with post-traumatic stress um, conditions. So as I understand it, healing from trauma is about staying within this circle of tolerance and slowly gaining confidence and expanding it. It's not about jumping into the deep end and exposing oneself to the stimuli that's so distressing that you can't process it. That sets off the primal brain and and all those fight, flight, freeze things, and it doesn't build up resilience. It sounds like we might agree on this, that Mm -hmm. my concern with some of the things Haidt says is that, you know, you can't just put people, you have to recognise you can't put people in extremely stressful situations and just assume that that's going to build resilience, that you have to be in that circle of tolerance. And for some people, certain levels of stress is just too much. But on the other hand, you don't want to not. You don't want to make stress a negative in and of itself because it isn't. Yeah. As long as it's within one circle of tolerance, do you think I've is that adequately? You know. Ex- yeah, explain how trauma works. Yeah, I I think that's a good sort of summary. And then I think if you link it back to trigger warning specifically, it would be: Are they like adding to this? Are they making people avoid something when they should avoid it? Yes. Or approach something when they should approach it? Are they pr- mentally preparing that person? And then it, that's where the murky stuff comes in where it's like, I don't really think they're probably helping in that way. And it might depend on the person. And it also might depend on the person. Yeah, exactly. So, so Nicole, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, that do you worry at all that the trauma-centric approach that you advocate could inadvertently and stress inadvertently, but encourage young people to view distress as inherently something to avoid, even creating that sort of feedback loop where they get nervous and distressed about being distressed, which could amplify distress, then we know psychology can work that way. So even if it's not the intention, all the focus on traumatic distress could be interpreted by young people as as distress being a bad thing and something to be avoided in and of itself, rather than the truth, which is that a good amount of stresses are healthy and important to build resilience. No, <laughs> I'm not worried about that in the slightest. <laughs> and, okay, good. You know, good. There are a few reasons for that. One of them is that it is true that continuing to be traumatized over and over, there is no building resilience to that. No. We know that victims who've been sexually assaulted multiple times have worse outcomes. They tend to show greater signs of distress. So there is no building resilience of, you know, it's a very sort of crude way to put it to say, if I get raped enough times, I won't be bothered by rape anymore. That's yeah, impossible. Yeah, yeah. That will never yeah. happen, right? And so I think it's good to be thinking 
a little bit more critically about what is an appropriate level of trauma and what is not. I also don't think there's any value in learning to just sort of sit there when someone is denying your own experience, when someone is stripping you of your humanity. Actually, a part of what becomes resilient and one of the tools of resilience is to set a boundary and to say what you're saying isn't true. And there's no value in hearing this disinformation about sexual violence. There's no value in hearing this victim-blaming language that does not align with the realities of our lives or what experts know to be true about sexual violence. The trauma-informed approach, I think, actually does offer resilience. So, for example, I do some things in my classes that a lot of people would think are just impossible in our current educational place. Mm. So for mm. example, I have I have my students on I think one of the most difficult days of class. Listen to survivors tell the stories of their sexual assaults, although not in a lot of detail, and how they continue to impact them over the course of the last 5 years of their lives. Because the impacts of these types of trauma are often a lot more far-reaching than people think. And I think it's really important for people to hear those personal narratives about how a sexual assault can last across a life course, especially without proper support. This isn't hiding from traumatic material. This isn't telling Hmm. students, oh, you know, we're not going to cover it. Instead, it's giving them the tools from a trauma-informed perspective to say, I think everybody should be able to stay in this room if they would like to. I think that it would be denying you an educational opportunity to say that because you have been sexually assaulted, you must skip class today. So instead, what we'll do is create an environment where it is safer to discuss these distressing materials. And so things that I'll do on that day, for example, I always turn the lights off so it's harder for students to see each other and judge each other's emotional reactions. I will tell everyone that it is normal to have an emotional reaction to this type of material, regardless of whether or not you have personal experience with sexual trauma. And this allows survivors to feel more comfortable staying in the room because if they cry, they don't feel like they're disclosing that they're an abuse survivor. If they have a big emotional reaction, they don't feel like they're on display. I'll invite students to bring comforting objects that might make it easier for them to stay in that window of tolerance. So we usually have a potluck that day, which maybe seems counterintuitive (laughs) and almost celebratory, but it is celebratory to say we can discuss these difficult topics and also do it in a way that's not stigmatized, it's comfortable. And we are all moving in the pursuit of recognizing that this is a social problem, that sexual violence is wrong. We're not going to diminish the harm of this. We're going to think about this in a way that is respectful of the traumatic experience. Yeah. So, so you really you're you're saying that the trauma centric approach is a way of empowering students to manage and regulate themselves to stay in their circle of tolerance and to have the tools to be able to do so that it doesn't, as much as people or some people might think, create a negative feedback loop where people have become overly sensitized to distressing material and can then sort of avoid it per se. Do you think it can depend on the individual or, I mean, uh, can some people misinterpret this high sensitivity to trauma? If you're feeling uncomfortable with something that it's going to be some, something that needs to be avoided because it's not helping you. Again, I would point to the research that suggests that people tend not 
to avoid these materials, right? And instead, a trauma-informed approach is actually a way of building some resiliency, of creating some skills and tools and also boundaries around how we talk about this type of violence to make sure that it's not unnecessarily damaging and that people can sit in the hard stuff for a while. I also want to pull back a little bit because we're operating from this assumption that a lot of the variation between how individuals respond to trauma has to do with who they are as a person, maybe their own personal life experiences. But in my work, I find that a lot of the variation in terms of why a survivor might or might not develop PTSD, for example, comes from the social reactions they got in the aftermath of violence. Right. So if a survivor immediately following their sexual assault is surrounded by people who tell them, don't be a victim about it, you are in control over your own destiny, just don't let it bother you, they tend to internalize self-blame, which not only exacerbates their trauma, but it can put them at risk of sexual assault in the future because they are now getting misinformation about the sources of sexual harms. So Mm. instead of saying... There are some scenarios that are risky or it's not my fault. Um, Instead, they often put themselves in higher risk situations to sort of prove I will make a better decision next time. But you're not sexually Mm. assaulted because you made a bad Mm. decision. That's not where it comes from. And so it can be very risky to do that. In contrast, survivors who are validated in their experiences are told that the violence is not your fault. It's not fair. And you don't deserve for it to happen again tend to be more resilient moving forward. They tend to heal faster and to have fewer traumatic symptoms. Well, thanks so much to both of you. I'm going to just ask Lloyd a little quick question now, and then we'll move over to his section. But Lloyd, you've been very involved in trauma, setting up the trauma center in South Africa, you know, 20, 30 years, I don't know how many years ago it was. A long long time ago. A long time ago. (laughs) So, you know, arguably before our guests were adults. How has the knowledge about trauma shifted in the time and you know what do you make of this discussion about trigger warnings being a way to help you know reduce the stress and help mitigate the the effects of trauma and maybe just for the guest purposes uh, for listeners just sort of um, briefly recount your what your expertise was in trauma well i spent a significant time of my life as an activist and then set up the Center uh, for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, which had uh, one of the largest trauma centers in South Africa during the time of sort of heightened civil war, where there were death squads, you know, mass rape, mass executions. And so we were dealing with really extreme violence, extreme trauma, um, as well as, of course, mass detentions, mass Uh, mass torture. And I say mass because it was mass. And then I myself suffered post-traumatic stress disorder, although I would have called myself trauma naive. I I certainly didn't acknowledge it, which which is another issue. But as I was listening to you, Emil, uh, chatting to Nicole and Victoria, I sort of kept on moving between uh, I agree with Nicole, then I agree with Victoria, and, and I sort of kept on moving between the two. What, what is important is that trauma is a frozen moment. And, and the reason you that triggers are sometimes powerful is because it is frozen. It is a frozen memory that is extremely fresh. And so there are lots of things that can trigger you. Um, it can be just, you know, the soap um, and the type of soap because that was the soap that was used by the victim when they washed themselves. Um, there, there are so many dimensions to that. On the other hand, I think if I reflect on 
victims who are able to move beyond their trauma and that there were many people that I saw, um, uh, and even Mandela was, for example, somebody like that, who were able to sort of find absolute liberation in their trauma. They could find spiritual growth. They could find new parts of themselves. They built incredibly uh, cohesive relationships. They found new purpose. They, they set up their own centers or they, 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 they built their own activism. And so I think if we, we have to be careful that trauma is not just purely defined as the worst possible thing that can happen. It is a terrible thing that has happened to an individual. Some people with help and, and some people need a lot of support because otherwise they will crumble to Nicole's point. Some people need more help. Some people need less. That is often based on genetics, predisposition, uh, to Nicole's point, institutional support or institutional betrayal. So I think, you know, it's it's so manifold. One thing for myself, though, I never defined myself as having post-traumatic stress. Uh, now, that gave me a lot of agency. It allowed me to do many things. I, I had to get up in the morning. I had to work. I had to support my family. Um, and so if I defined myself as a pure victim, I think things would have crumbled. On the other hand... You might have healed more quickly. On the other hand, had I dealt with some of the issues and not been in denial about my trauma and maybe had less agency, the impact on other people would have been less. And, mm. and, and so uh, this is why it gets, you know, as with anything this complex, it gets confusing. What I would say is that what is clear to me is that when people have been traumatized, they need support. To Nicole's point, institutional betrayal is not just bad, it is vicious. Uh, when I, and that can be anything. That can be a teacher, that can be the court, that can be a nurse, that can be a doctor. It is sometimes compounding. On the other hand, I would say the identity of, of, of victim really can hold people back. And, and so then the story just gets confirmed over and over and over again. And, and, and so that can be individual work or therapeutic work. Sorry, it was a long, a long and rambling answer, uh, which will only indicate to you that I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Nicole and Victoria. That was incredibly brilliant. Yeah, thank you. Join us next week for Principle of Charity on the Couch, where Lloyd will have a very different kind of conversation with the guests. And so then the other question is, why would we continue to platform anyone who might be causing harm with their words? And do you think they should be deplatformed then? Do you think yes. we should not have them? Yes, absolutely. They shouldn't I, have the right to air their views. They're welcome to air their views, but I don't think that we should assist them. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.